This is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Over the past several months, the U.S. bishops have focused attention on the rights of migrants and refugees. The migration issue became a religious liberty issue when President Trump signed an executive order blocking travel into the U.S. from several Muslim-majority countries. The USCCB has argued that the original travel ban, sometimes called a Muslim ban, is unconstitutional because it effectively discriminates against a particular religious group. Why are the bishops taking such a strong stand on these issues? Today we're going to put all of this talk about migration into context. Here with us is Todd Scribner. Todd is in a unique position to address this issue. He's Education Outreach Coordinator for the USCCB's Migration and Refugee Services. So he's familiar with migration and refugee issues. He's also a Ph.D. in Religious Studies with a focus on American church history. So he has a good sense of how the American church has responded to moments in history like ours. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Scribner. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the bishops have challenged the travel ban, have urged continued support for DACA, called for comprehensive immigration reform that respects both our national sovereignty as well as the dignity of migrants, These concerns have historical roots. The U.S. bishops didn't just decide a few months ago to start caring about this issue. Uh, We Catholics have a history of being involved in this issue. And the bishops have a record of speaking up for migrants and refugees. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, Aaron. And you're correct uh, when you say that the bishops have been long involved in the issue of migration. Um, And it's timely in the year 2017 to kind of be talking about this. Um, because it's the 100th year anniversary of the establishment of what is now the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So in 1917, uh, the bishops formed the National Catholic War Council, which was an effort to demonstrate the patriotism of Catholics during World War I to show that they were engaged in um, sort of sort of patriotic kind of zeal and, and an effort to protect the country, um, so on and so forth. Um, once the war closed, once it ended, they kept the institution um, around. Uh, It was renamed the National Catholic Welfare Conference. Um, And it was the intention of being that it could more effectively, the church could more effectively engage federal level issues that were emergent at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. As policy began to be federalized, you know, in the decades around that period, the Catholic Church needed a voice um, in Washington, D.C. And one area that they immediately um, drew attention to was the issue of migration. So, uh, you know, within really a matter of months after the National Catholic Welfare Conference was kind of up and running officially, um, they established a Department on Immigration. And the Department of Immigration addressed um, immigration-related issues, obviously. Um, It was about three years prior to the passage of the 1924 Immigration Act, which was uh, an incredibly restrictive piece of legislation that was built on uh, a number of sort of racial considerations. Uh, the bishops opposed it because of concerns for the foundations for the, uh, the legislation. Um, and they opposed it because they, were, uh, they had concerns that it didn't uh, line up nicely with sort of the tradition of the American experience. Um, you know, throughout the 20s and into the 30s, they opposed it with the onset of the displaced persons crisis in and around World War II. Um, you had a tremendous amount of upheaval, obviously, in Europe with the war, and even in the years preceding with the persecution of, of 
Jews in particular, but other groups as well, uh, the Catholic bishops uh, responded proactively to the uh, to efforts to, to resettle uh, displaced persons into the United States. So following the war, they were very active in their advocacy efforts to pass uh, legislation that would do this. Mm -hmm. um, so they were behind the Displaced Persons Act of 1948, which brought in hundreds of thousands of people. It's renewal in 1952 um, and future iterations of, of refugee resettlement. Um, and this really, these efforts um, really brought in refugees from primarily in Europe at the time, but you know in the 50s and the 60s that sort of focus expanded. So in the 60s with the Vietnam War, um, you had a number of Southeast Asians who became refugees as a consequence. Um, the United States resettled hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese and others from the area. The Catholic Church were was proactive, and the bishops in particular were proactive in, in trying to drum up support for this resettlement efforts. Um, in the 1980s, I mean, there was the Cuban situation, really beginning in the 1960s, with Castro's takeover of Cuba. Um, but again, the Catholic bishops were, were very um, outspoken in the need to, to protect migrants and refugees who were fleeing uh, areas of conflict um, and the need to kind of bring them to the United States wherever possible to ensure that they had an opportunity to live their lives in a more effective and, and wholesome way. Mm -hmm. But Todd, it's it's more than just the advocacy, right? I mean, th under the bishop's leadership throughout the past hundred years, they, I mean, they put their money where their mouth is really, but not just money, but like the effort and resources under their leadership of the, of, of dioceses of parishes of Catholic communities right it's it's not just the advocacy where the bishops lead you're right I mean that's actually really very important to point out I mean the advocacy is one aspect um, I mean I think it's important to, to recognize that the that the role of the bishops in the Catholic Church uh, uh, one of the fundamental roles uh, of the Catholic bishops in the church is to, to form culture um, if not the fundamental role um, you know there's this notion that uh, politics lives downstream from culture um, you have to shape, if you can shape culture in an effective way, you can shape the policy decisions and discussions and debates um, that uh, sort of emerge out of that, you know, the culture that's creative. And so, so the Catholic bishops are very keen on shaping a culture that respects human dignity, that, that is keen on, on shaping a culture that respects solidarity, family unity, um, local communities, um, and doing what they can to strengthen that. And part of that activity is to recognize and to support the the dignity of migrants, you know, as a special sort of population that needs our attention, particularly because they're very vulnerable to um, kind of exploitation uh, if they're immigrants, you know, who are coming here to work, um, or refugees who are exploited, you know, in their homeland, forced to leave. Um, so it's kind of an expression of an underlying culture, a vision for what how we ought to live as a community and as a people that shapes the policy prescriptions that the bishops then advocate on behalf of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think it makes a difference that um, we're so involved, that the Catholic Church is so involved in the actual, like in this work too, of, of resettling refugees, of, of working with migrants, of working with vulnerable populations, so we can speak with some authority about what sorts of policy solutions can be helpful because we have knowledge of what's actually happening on the ground um, and one of those these issues then of, of in terms of what's actually happening and where there can be areas of concern is the issue of safety in terms of some of the kind of restrictions that President Trump has proposed uh, the reason behind it is is um, is that it's it's to keep Americans safe and and certainly the bishops 
it's have consistently argued that that it, the nation does have the right to to um, maintain control of its its sovereignty and uh, that sort of thing. So that's that is a part of it. It's not like we're saying we're not advocating for say open borders that sort of thing. But on the refugee case, especially when and, and this issue of safety, because we do work so with so closely with. Um, with different, or we, we do so much work to resettle refugees. Can you give us a sense of the, how much of a concern the safety issue really is? I mean, what sort of, of vetting, pro, what is the vetting process like? Uh, is there a good reason to be concerned? I mean, obviously you can never be completely assured of that, that we're safe, but, but in general, I mean, it's not, uh, they go through a very difficult vetting process. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, you, you touch on a couple of really key points. I mean, the first one, uh, before I turn specifically to the refugee situation, you know, it's really important to, to emphasize, you know, the, the fact that uh, sovereignty, state sovereignty is an important element within the Catholic Church's and the bishops' recognition of this kind of migration question. And so in their pastoral letter, Strangers No Longer, which was issued in 2003 with the Mexican bishops, one of the key principles of five principles that are kind of provide a, a general framework is the right of, of sovereign states to sort of regulate migration into the country. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the key principles um, that's often overlooked, it's often diminished, you know, by people who disagree with us as a way to kind of, I think, uh, marginalize us. But uh, nonetheless, it's, it's very important. Um, with respect to the refugee situation, that, that kind of carries over. I mean, you know, we want to resettle refugees uh, where it's, you know, effective and, and important to do so. You know, we have marginalized populations. But we want to make sure that that process is secure. Uh, it's not simply just you open your borders and any refugee who can get here can, can stream in. Um, and so there is a process in place uh, that has been in place for 30-some-odd years since 1980. Uh, in, in principle with the passage of the 1980 Refugee Act. Um, and it entails a, a number of key steps. So first of all, the United, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees is generally the person who will designate a pers uh, an individual as a refugee and, mm -hmm. and who qualifies as a consequence for resettlement into a third country. Um, the UNHCR then will generally refer that person to for review to a country, namely in our case the United States. The United States, once that person is, is referred to them, will um, go through a series of, of medical checks and other kind of background checks to make sure that they're, they're qualified, there's no disqualifying factor. Um, and then there's a, a whole array of security checks that are run by the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, these goes on multiple stage checks, biometric measures, uh, fingerprints to make sure that they're not in any database, you know, international otherwise, that would deem them a, a security threat. Um, this process can go on for 18 to 24 months, um, pretty generally. Um, and so it is, uh, it, it's, it's thorough, uh, it is secure, and at any point along the process, if a, an individual in the government who's doing a review of the person who's seeking resettlement into the United States feels a little bit off that this person may be a security threat, or they get a bad feeling, I mean, that alone is basically, you, they can stop it at any point in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, an it's a long process, it's a secure process, you know, no, as you say, no process is 100% foolproof, but it is, it, I mean, it's as, as secure probably as you're going to get. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, you know, the bishops take that seriously. We recognize the important role that the United States government has in ensuring the safety of the system. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's not in our interest not to have a secure system. Mm -hmm. You know, we take seriously the resettlement of refugees who really need resettlement. Mm -hmm. And we recognize that if there is a, you know, if there was some sort of national security problem that emerged, that the program would, would be under risk. So it's in everyone's interest to make sure that it's safe, um, and, and, it, and it is. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about uh, our response to the original travel ban, the USCCB's response. And in its amicus brief, um, the, the USCCB uh, refers to the Catholic Church's opposition to religious discrimination. And in pointing that out, uh, we're drawing from our experience of anti-Catholicism in the U.S. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the forms of discrimination that Catholics have faced? Because I think some of this feeds into our, how we're responding to these sorts of issues that, that you know, the Catholic Church in the U.S. has generally considered, to, I mean, has mostly been made up of immigrants. And we've often faced uh, discrimination and struggles in the United States. So we kind of draw from our experience when, we, when we're looking at these issues. Can you... Talk about that a little bit, about what sorts of uh, discrimination that we faced, what anti-Catholicism has looked like in the United States. Sure, happy to do so. I mean, you know, it's hard, I think, for a lot of Catholics who are out there, you know, listening to this podcast today to, to really appreciate the extent to which the, the Catholic Church was under a siege in, at some points in time in American history, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, because the Catholic Church is integrated pretty effectively at this point in time, there is anti-Catholicism out there, and you can point to cases of it. But if you turn back to the 19th century, I mean, there was a cl fairly clear pattern of, of, of prejudice against Catholics in a, in a dominant Protestant culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, this prejudice was brought over from the old world, you know, the Reformation, um, you know, it carried over, uh, you know, when uh, the United States was founded and afterward. Um, and you can point to specific instances of when this occurred, and you can also point to kind of thematic reasons why this occurred. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in, in terms of some of the specific instances, in 1834, in that summer, you know, a Protestant mob basically walked onto an Ursuline convent and burned it to the ground. The triggering effect for that, the immediate trigger for that, was because of concerns within the Protestant community that at least one nun, if not more, were being held against their will. Mm -hmm. Um, and not allowed to leave and were being exploited in, in various forms and fashion. And so in a way it was a rescue mission uh, right. by I think a lot of Protestants who, who did that. Um, there are other underlying reasons as well. Um, there were tensions emerging in the area um, between Catholic labor and Protestant labor, which kind of upped the, uh, the anti-Catholic fervor at the time. There were divisions that were occurring within the Protestant church itself in New England and Massachusetts in particular uh, during that period, uh, in which certain denominations were on the ascendant and other denominations were on the descendant. And so that created some tensions as well. Um, in this situation, kind of this the besieged nun, uh, the exploited nun, created a literature unto itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, as uh, many of you who are listening the may... The escaped convent the escaped, genre. <laughs> the escaped convent genre. <laughs> yeah. A long-lost genre <laughs> yeah, at this yeah, point yeah, in time <laughs> that does not need to uh, come yeah, back yeah. into uh, I thought you were going to... Wasn't the name of this town Salem? Yeah, could have right? been. Yeah, no, Ch Charles. Uh, oh, okay. I thought, that, I thought this was going to be like a, a witch... Mm, well, kind of, uh, kind of actually, parallels. one of the first, um, my understanding is that 
uh, one of the first accused witches in Salem, though, was a Catholic. And it was because, um, I believe it was a young woman who who prayed the, the Our Father in Latin, the Pater Noster. And so when she was heard speaking in Latin, it was assumed that she was some sort of, <laughs> yeah, that she was under a spell or that she was, you know, doing some, you know, these wicked incantations or something. So, yeah, like, so they're actually, I mean, you bring that up. I mean, that there there is a connection there with the, with the witch trials and anti-Catholicism. Uh, that's a little bit different than, the nativism in some ways, but, but there's still, yeah, there definitely are connections there with that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that sort of brings up another point. I mean, the way in which cultural kind of dynamics fed into the anti-Catholicism, I mean, there's certainly religious dynamics that, that fed into anti-Catholicism, you know, obviously from the Reformation onward, but there are cultural ones as well. You know, and if you look at the, the image of kind of the ideal woman within Protestant culture during the period, you know, was a homemaker and a mother and a wife who, you know, took care of the family, raised children, you know, had lots of children possibly. Um, and this vision of a nun who was sort of segregated from society, living in kind of a spiritual life, contrasted mm-hmm. sharply with the understanding of how a woman should be and what a woman should do. And so there are these kind of cultural and social dynamics that didn't mesh well with sort of the American experience at the time. Um, and so that, so all of these dynamics, the economic, the cultural, the religious, kind of all fed into it. Um, I mean, wait, what yeah, you're sure. saying, though, is because we were kind of like the first feminists, since <laughs> yeah. we were saying that that women could be, could be something free, other than to, a, that, that they I, could do something else. They could be something other than a homemaker or a wife. They could, <laughs> okay, okay. They, they, had, they had certain liberties. Because that's, that's usually what we're accused of. Is <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We are. I know. And okay. it's, that's a simplistic way to look at them, right. as, <laughs> as you, you can point okay. out. Um, and so this is like one instance of, of uh, you know, kind of anti-Catholicism, but it, but it continued on. You know, 10 years after the, the burning of the Ursuline convent, there were riots in Philadelphia, uh, which damaged churches, aimed at, ta- at Catholics. There was threats in New York that Protestants were going to turn against the Catholic Church in a kind of violent manner. Uh, Archbishop Pews at the time um, threatened to burn New York down as if it were Moscow. Um, you know, a reference to the burning of Moscow some around that period. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's basically if you if you if you turn on us, we'll we'll destroy New York before you can destroy us. So, I mean, it's a so you have these kind of different reactions within the Catholic Church as well as to how they're going to respond to it more diplomatically or more robustly, kind of returning the threats. Um, in the ni- 1850s, you have uh, the Know Nothing Party emerge, um, which at its core was sort of one of the key uh, components of it was an anti-Catholicism. Um, and then certainly in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, there were uh, a renewed efforts uh, to, to attack the Catholic Church. And these were built on a number of different um, avenues. One of the key elements that it was built on was the school question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea, on the one hand, Protestants thought that the school, you know, seeking, after the, the Civil War, one of the key kind of pushes was to try and gain national unity. Obviously, when the nation practically destroyed itself, uh, it wanted to kind of reunify and, and demonstrate kind of the, the republic was strong again. And one of the key kind of tasks of the public school system was to create good citizens mm-hmm. uh, and to mold good citizens into good Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, they would generally read the King James Version of the Bible. Um, they would offer the prayers from that. 
which was obviously a, a Protestant Bible, which the Catholic Church uh, had no kind of interest in necessarily pursuing. Um, and so the Catholic Church raised complaints. Um, there are stories of priests who uh, threatened uh, parents that they wouldn't provide parents with uh, the Eucharist or uh, confession if they sent their children to public schools. Um, I mean, that's kind of it. It shows kind of the heightened sense of mm. the threat that public schools pose to Catholic identity as well. Because mm. the, the fear was that if you send your child to a Catholic school, they're going to become Protestant. Their, their, their faith will be undermined. And this has long-lasting consequences. Mm. Um, you mean know, if they send them to public schools? If, they send, if the Catholics sent, yeah. the, sent their children to public schools, right. then there would be the concern. Right. Um, and so then there was an effort to obviously create a, uh, you know, a, a, a Catholic public school system, or a Catholic school system, rather, to kind of counter that, the public school's influence. And um, we can get into that a little bit later. Um, well, actually, our next podcast that we're doing is with um, Greg Dolan in Catholic Education on this very issue. So you're, you're teeing it up very nicely with the, with the, yes. with yes. the history. People I mean, will have to listen again to the next <laughs> yes, podcast. Yes, we yes. keep them coming back. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one thing I did yeah, want to ask, sure. you mentioned the citizenship piece, yeah. though. I mean, that, and I know this is an interest of yours, too, and, but, mm. and this is still... Um, it seems to me that this is I mean, this is still kind of an an issue that this this concern that Catholics can't can't be good citizens. I mean, we kind of we saw this in the Amy Barrett nomination at some de, to some degree. I mean, the the question Amy was, Barrett nomination, which was to, uh, to the Seventh Circuit of Court of Appeals, that that she was um, asked about her about whether or not she could recuse herself if her basically if her faith conflicted with with the law and she had argued in a paper that the judge uh, should recuse herself but she was basically accused of putting her faith before the law and you know the great quote was like the dogma lives loudly within you or and she was asked if she was an orthodox catholic now i mean i don't want to that's Far, definitely outside my area of expertise in terms of kind of like the role of a judge and society and that sort of thing. Um, but it does seem there is, you still get this underlying kind of sense that, that Catholics can't be good public servants mm -hmm. in some ways. I mean, because I mean, they were really tiptoeing up to a religious test and asking those sorts of questions. And there were even, I remember when Justice Sotomayor, uh, I can't remember what the decision was, but there were people uh, where she, it may have been the Hosanna Tabor, one of those cases where she where uh, she kind of sided with, with the church and she was accused by some op-ed writers of kind of, you know, of betraying secular liberalism. I mean, Justice Sotomayor is not um, somebody who's, I, I don't know, uh, she's not somebody who has ever suggested that she would put her faith, she would put Catholic faith before uh, her her um, secular beliefs. But even so, even she is still kind of like the accusation still kind of gets leveled against against her. So I mean, you still see this kind of idea that that Catholics and and Catholic schools don't don't produce citizens. That's what we need the public schools to to help. To, um, produce good citizens, uh, so it's kind of interesting. It's not overt the way it was in the know nothing era, but it's it seems like you still kind of have 
there's you still kind of have this in some ways. Yeah, it's crucial. I mean, an old habits die high, die hard, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and if you now, if there are concerns in some quarters whether or not Catholics can make good, you know, public servants, there were concerns in the 19th century and well into the 20th even whether Catholics could actually be American citizens mm-hmm. um, in any effective manner. Um, and this was in large part an outgrowth of perceptions here in the United States among you know, Protestant evangelical uh, types that the commitment of Catholics to a foreign power, namely the Pope, and the Pope's kind of proclamations on liberties and human rights, at least mm-hmm. seen at the time, were consistent with uh, uh, a commitment to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can look, uh, it's not just an American phenomenon. These Protestants looked to Europe in, in some ways and took kind of what they saw happening in Europe, brought it back to the United States, kind of internalized it and projected it out onto the Catholics here. Um, so there's a great deal of conflict in Europe during the 19th century. You know, the culture conf in Germany, which turned against Catholics in many respects. The efforts to unify Italy, you know, in the 1850s, 1860s. Uh, which came eventually at the, uh, the, the price of the, the Papal States. Um, efforts in, in France as well in the eight, late 1870s uh, to, you know, turn against clericalism. You know, the Catholic, the Pope, um, oftentimes, you know, in response to that, kind of looked at liberalism as a kind of political movement, as um, kind of anti-clerical and anti-church. And so there was an immediate kind of concern with liberalism as such. The church's views of liberalism has has evolved to some extent, obviously, since then, and um, they speak much more favorably of, of human rights. But during the 19th century, there were deep concerns that, you know, in Marari Vos, in the Syllabus of Errors, in proclamations at the First Vatican Council, you know, proclaiming the infallibility of the Pope, as understood here in the United States among Protestants, that these were completely anti-liberal and therefore anti-American. And so Catholics who espoused sort of support for the Pope and espoused support for the teachings of the Pope really could not fit effectively within an American context. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, you know, this could, if this were just purely an academic perspective, you know, across the seas and this were happening in Europe, um, that would be one thing. But really what fed into Protestant concerns was mass migration of Catholics into the United States into the, in the, during the 19th century and into the early decades of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So not only was the threat overseas, you know, in the person of the Pope espousing these anti-liberal, you know, perspectives as Protestants understood it, but they, Catholics were also arriving in large numbers here into the United States at the time. And so it was an external threat that was turned into an internal threat that could possibly undermine the republic and in their view in the protestants view put into place kind of the the pope as a kind of the supreme ruler of the united states mm-hmm. so this was a, a contentious kind of area of, of concern for you know for protestants and catholics alike you know during the 19th century um that slowly came to a resolution and uh, more or less um you know as you proceed toward the second vatican council and some of the debates and uh, the nuances of the debates is once they became a little bit more clear yeah yeah well, um, I mean, because we're kind of moving towards wrapping up, I, I, you know, you raising these, the 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 perception of Catholicism. Uh, I wonder how that kind of compares, or do you see some similarities with current concerns about about um, Muslim migration? Because that's that's really with the travel ban, the original travel ban, at least. I mean, that was that was the big concern that it's targeting Muslim majority countries. 
Um, and so do you uh, do you see some comparisons there that it's a kind of some simil some yeah some it's kind of like a new nativism in some ways like or it doesn't seem like it's quite as aggressive maybe but it does seem like there are some similarities. But. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that there are, there are some similarities. There's some differences, obviously, as well. It's hard to take historical periods and, you know, make them equal as right, such. Right. But, I mean, yeah, you can, I mean, as we talked about the 19th century, you know, looking at the Catholics, in a way, scapegoating Catholics, it's probably not technically the proper way to put it, but looking at Catholics, you know, as a, a threat to the Union and uh, likely bringing in a theocratic rule of the Pope over the United States at the expressed um, problem to the, to the Constitution. Um, and the democratic experiment. Um, and so Catholics are kind of the, the bogeyman that needed to be stopped. You know, if you look in the, in the post-World War II period, um, and during that time, you know, Jews were oftentimes looked negatively, even after the experiences of World War II and, you know, the terrible persecution that they underwent, there was at times sort of conceptions that, you know, the Jews were communists as well. So if you allow communists into the country, you know, this is a, really as the, the Cold War was beginning, um, you know, through resettlement, Jews and others, you know, if you resettled uh, your refugees from, from Europe, um, that they would bring in a, um, a threat to the United States and, you know, you know, displace the, you know, the American system of government with a more of a Marxist communist system of government, or at least cause all sorts of problems. And now once again, you know, rather than Catholics or Jews or, or you know, Europeans more generally, now it's, it's Muslims who are once again seen as kind of bringing a threatening ideology into the United States, mm -hmm. uh, Islamism, uh, Sharia, that sort of thing that will displace American, you know, systems of government, you know, cultural, you know, realities, so on and so forth, and impose a kind of theocratic rule, uh, if they're able to do so, here. So there's a, there's a kind of, there are parallels, I think, in the way in which, and it, that sort of speaks, I think, to kind of just nativism more broadly. You know, these, this, this underlying concern for kind of the foreigner, the stranger, the other, who is deemed a threat to the people who are here um, in the United States um, and kind of the dangers that come along with that. But, and I want to point out, too, that I think that, that, you know, what the bishops are saying now is, I mean, they're really advocating, like, first freedom. This is our freedom here. Mm -hmm. Religious liberty is, is such a, is part of what it means not only to be Catholic to advocate for religious liberty, but also to be an, a U.S. Um, a citizen of this country. And so, you know, you, you spent a lot of time talking about the the Protestant Catholic tensions, but but right now, I mean, we have actually collaborated with a lot of of other faiths, right? To to um, to talk about and advocate for religious freedom together. So it's not to say that you know the past histories uh, in any way. I don't know. It's 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 something that we can come together on with people of all faiths to say what your faith is that's up to you and that's protected in this country sure i mean the, the past isn't necessarily indicative of the future as such you know i mean the catholics and protestants didn't like each other at all uh you know well into the even into the mid 20th century you know protestants were warning of you know catholic mariology or idolatry of mary mm -hmm. you know so on and so forth and the threat of, you know, so on and so forth um, but now, particularly in the post-Vatican II period, Catholics and Protestants have worked much more closely together uh, on a number of issues, including, you know, religious freedom. Uh, but you can also look at the pro-life issue. You can look at, you know, migration-related issues. I mean, there's, you know, different uh, kind of groupings of Protestant and Catholics working together. Um, and there's a lot in common in, in many respects and at and many junctures. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, it's there's no reason to think that you know what is now will always be, um, and that relations can certainly warm uh, with with our you know with Muslims as as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've you know we had Monte Alvarado on this podcast um, a while back, and then we've also had Asma Yudin, uh, who used to work with for with Beckett Monse's at Beckett now Beckett. Beckett, uh, Beckett the Beck, well, they were right? Beckett. They changed to Beckett Law. Beckett Law. But Beckett Law, but okay. you know, their uh, religious liber- liberty, uh, public interest law firm. They they kind of to me illustrate what y'all are talking about with mm-hmm. the collaboration because besides the fact that they'll defend the rights of people of all faiths, it's really they're made up of people of all faiths and uh, you know a lot of. Latter-day Saints, Catholics, Evangelicals, uh, Muslims, and I mean, I think, and they're, they're, I mean, they're all, as far as a lot of the people that I've known from there are all, they're very uh, devoted to their faith. So that's, I mean, I think that's another part of it. It's not like they've like watered their faith down, or even when we work with, say, like the Southern Baptist, um, Russell Moore, uh, I mean, these are people who are very, they're still very devout. Uh, they haven't, like, watered their watered their faith down to, like, work with some other group. They'll still disagree vehemently on, you know, a lot of issues. But um, but we've kind of realized how important it is that on, on these types of issues to at least um, to be able to coexist at all. Like, we need to be able to, we need to have... Uh, the freedom to exercise our faith in public and not to have our faith be something that has to be some purely private matter, which is often kind of what what um, that's often what the fight ends up being about is whether or not you have to make your faith like a purely private sort of thing right. or so, relegate it just to worship. Our exercise of our faith yeah, is that about was, more than just that. It often ends up being the thing. Yeah, it's like right. freedom of when you hear freedom of worship. That's kind of like the way. Ding ding ding! High <laughs> alert! Raise <laughs> the red flag. Yeah. That's often yeah. kind of the sign that we are getting like a very um, kind of truncated version of religious liberty. Is mm-hmm. to say like, well, it's just, yeah, you're free. You, you're free to, you know, go celebrate mass. But other than that, like your faith doesn't is is um, you're supposed to kind of check it at the vestibule when you leave. Mm-hmm. I guess is kind of the way it goes. So. Yeah. I wonder, just one last question to wrap us up. Um, can you tell us, in terms of these kind of the bishop's defense of migrants and refugees, uh, including Muslims, you know, what are some ways that we can, that Catholics can be engaged? Uh, this is a time you can plug your website. Oh, right. <laughs> Long last, my gosh, I've been waiting for this all podcast. Or your recent book, if you wrote a book. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. you're an author. I am, I am. Um, oh, I didn't even know that. It yeah. was an honest to goodness plug, and I didn't even know. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I, I guess in terms of the... Um, what, what Catholics can do and other people who are interested in what the Catholic Church and the Catholic bishops are doing. You know, one of the key, I think, resources that they can turn to is the Justice for Immigrants uh, webpage. It's justiceforimmigrants.org. Um, this website provides a, a kind of a clearinghouse for us to kind of put out our positions, the bishops' positions, on issues related to migration. You know, we have regular webinars. We've developed resources on key policy issues. Uh, we're in the midst of, of trying to develop some other initiatives that will highlight Catholic social teaching. 
you know, American history and some of the dynamics that sort of interweave and you know throughout these discussions sort of what we're doing here today mm-hmm. um, so justiceforimmigrants.org is a place to go to um, that would be that would be one of the key things uh, strangers no longer is a pastor letter I mentioned earlier it was sort of issued in 2003 bet- it was a joint letter uh, between the US bishops and the Mexican bishops which highlights some of the key themes uh, within Catholic teaching on on migration, um, both cultural and policy oriented. So it's definitely worth a read um, if you have an opportunity to to take a look at that. And Dr. Scribner, yes. Would you also say that, um, I mean, another thing is prayer. I'm assuming there's some prayer resources on Justice for Immigrants website? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I I, I did not mean to overlook the prayer resources. Oh, no, no, no. no. I'm just (laughs) just trying to plug that prayer thing, you know, in public or in private. Yeah, absolutely. We have, you know, we have spiritual rosaries um, that are targeted kind of like the migration issue. We have a number of different prayers. Um, We have National Migration Week, which is upcoming. January 7th to the 13th, 2018, and which we're going to be releasing a number of different, um, you know, kind of uh, sort of resources and so on and so forth. And that's uh, probably every every year. Every year, it yeah. January. It's like the second or it's the first full week, basically, in January, okay. um, every year, more or less. Um, and it's a key kind of week in which the bishops focus on migration-related issues. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of prayer is key, advocacy is key, mm-hmm. uh, sort of, and cultural formation is key. You know, without any of these three, you know, there's these three elements, you know, there's, there's generally something missing um, in, in our effort to get the, you know, the church's teaching out on these issues. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come and talk with us, and I'm sure we'll have you on again at some point soon so yep thank you so much uh this is aaron matthew weldon and mary mccleskey thank you for joining us for this episode of the first freedom podcast